Good morning. Before we look at our passage, I wanted to let you know that here in a few weeks we're going to have what we call our fifth Sunday family worship. We did it back in the spring, if you'll remember, when we honored our graduating seniors and we had baptisms, and we're going to do something similar here at the end of this month. And we'll do baptisms again and uh, have an incredible testimony that you'll be greatly uh, blessed by. But there's one element that I want to ask for your help with. Uh, It involves the summer memory challenge. You'll remember we looked at Isaiah 40 and hopefully at least some of you committed that to memory. And if so, I am looking for volunteers who will recite that on the Sunday of our fifth uh, Sunday family worship. Now, I'll make it easy on you. If you are intimidated by doing the whole thing, then get some friends. And it's okay to split it up into two or three or four or however many parts, and you each do a part. But the message that I will preach that Sunday is based on that passage, and I would love to have some folks or a person recite it. And I'll even put some skin in the game. I'll do it with you. If that's something you want to do and you need a partner, then count me in. We'll do it together. But that's something I would be hopeful for on that Sunday. So just keep that in mind. You can email me. uh, Just let me know that you're interested, and we'll figure out a way to make it happen. So as we've been talking about, the letter of James is filled with all kinds of practical truth. And as I've tried to argue, James is not randomly choosing topics and then just discussing them as he goes. Instead, there's a very purposeful path of what it means to walk in godly wisdom. Especially for those like us who live in a world surrounded by compromise. Because in this world, we face any variety of trials and temptations. And trials, as we've talked about, are, are used by God to strengthen our faith. They draw us closer to Him. God works through our trials to strengthen our faith. Temptations are used by Satan to draw us away from God. Satan will work through these temptations to entice us towards sin. And it really takes wisdom to know the difference between the two because Satan is so deceptive. It takes wisdom to understand how to take the truth of God's Word and apply it to everyday life. And growing in wisdom, as James has been teaching us, is not possible without a teachable heart. Someone who's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listening has to be a priority if wisdom is the goal. Taking what we learn and then understanding how to apply it to how we live. As James said, becoming doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. Living in a way, ultimately, that puts the gospel on display. This pattern of life will inevitably impact those around us. Because what we receive from Christ as we walk with Him then spills over into our relationships with other people. Our compassion becomes a part of our witness for Christ. We display a faith that is undefiled by favoritism, by discrimination, that 
fills the word. It should look different in this place. We should be unified and rich in love. James has said that God has made all this possible because of the word of truth, the, the gospel of our salvation implanted in our hearts. Having believed in salvation through faith in Christ alone, that truth now comes alive. It's a living and active truth. It, it, it's the truth of Christ. As we talked about last week, it's that royal law of love that transforms how we live. So now James is going to take all that and, and, and make the argument that if the power of God is at work in our hearts, shouldn't it impact the way we live? It's a great question. If the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is at work in your heart as the Scripture says it is, shouldn't it impact the way in which we live? If we are indwelled and transformed by a living and active truth, shouldn't our life of faith be living and active as well? It's a great question. One that is so relevant to every life in this room. So as we look at this together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning. Pray that our hearts are prepared through the songs we have sung, to the testimonies that we have heard through Bruce and Kimberly, just to, to set our hearts on you, your work in our life, and the impact that makes in the world in which we live. So God, would you please remove distractions, give peace where there is anxiety, bring hope where there is despair, and help us see the truth of your word and how it applies to our life we pray this in your name amen if you would turn to james chapter 2 verse 14 james chapter 2 verse 14 where james continues and says in verse 14 what use is it my brethren if a man says he has faith but he has no works can that faith save him. Now, I'm going to pause there because that single verse is filled with a firestorm of controversy. A lot of people have read the verse and said, okay, is James saying that, that our salvation is dependent upon doing good works? And if so, doesn't that contradict with what Paul says when he says we're saved by faith alone apart from works? But the controversy only exists when we take those two statements made by James and Paul, we pull them out of a context in which they were written, and we pit them against each other. I can assure you with utmost confidence, there is no contradiction between the teaching of James and the teaching of Paul. They are speaking to two completely different audiences addressing two completely different issues. We've been talking about James is speaking to Jewish Christians who now live in a Gentile world filled with unbelievers. That life which they used to live in Jerusalem, 
that life of religious practice once helped them fit in, now makes them stand out. And the temptation for them and for us when we live in a world filled with compromise is to just blend in to society. Don't make any waves. To adopt a a profession of faith, if you will, without a practice of faith. It's a secret faith. Saying all the right words, but not living in the right way. Paul, on the other hand, is addressing something completely different. He, unlike James, is speaking to a primarily Gentile audience who is being influenced by a Jewish community. And these Judaizers are trying to convince the Gentiles that they need to become Jewish before they can become a Christian. It's the idea of developing a certain religious practice before you can have a legitimate profession of faith. See, the temptation when you're surrounded by that kind of legalism is to do good deeds without ever engaging your heart. It's a public practice without a genuine faith. It's really just the opposite of what James is speaking to. And in response to that, Paul says, no, you cannot merit God's favor by good works. We are saved by faith alone In Christ alone. Not as a result of good works. Because none of us can boast in that. But instead the only right response. To God's gift of grace. Is a heart of worship. Complete surrender. No strings attached. And James would hear that and he'd say you're right. And that heart of worship. Is made evident. In how we live. Living in a way. That puts the gospel on display. Living in a way that looks very different than the world around us. Because those who are indwelled by living an active faith should live very different lives. Lives that have been transformed by that truth. James says in verse 14 of our passage, this question. What use is it? If a man says he is He has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. He says, how can a faith that brings new life show no signs of life? Let me illustrate it this way. It'd be like taking a brand new light bulb, screwing it into the socket, but then nothing happens. When you see that, you know something's not right. Either that bulb is dead, or there's no electricity going to that socket. One of the two is happening, because that's not the way it's supposed to work. If that bulb is good, and there's electricity to that socket, that light will shine. And in the same way, if the power of God indwells your heart through faith in Christ, His light will shine in your life. This has been James's point from the very beginning of his letter. He's talking about true faith, true and undefiled religion. And true faith is what helps us endure trials. True faith is what helps us avoid temptation. True faith takes what we hear and then applies it to how we live so that what we receive from Christ then spills over 
into our relationships with other people. True and undefiled religion is, is another way for James to say a genuine faith. A faith where the light of Christ is made evident in the life we live. So how can a faith that brings new life have no light? James is saying it can't. It's not possible. Look at how he continues in verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. See, after asking that rhetorical question, how can a life that has been changed by the power of God show no life? The implication being it can't. He moves from that rhetorical question to really a pretty ridiculous example. Once again, he's doing it to make a point, one in hopes that we don't miss. He describes a fellow Christian because he calls them a brother or a sister. They are without clothing and without daily food. By highlighting the fact that this is a brother or a sister, James wants us to understand this is not a stranger. This is someone you know. This is someone you see each week every time you come to church. But due to circumstances, we don't know the details, circumstances have happened in such a way that it has put this brother or sister in Christ in a very difficult place in life. I want you to imagine, if you would, it being the middle of December. I know it's hard because we're still not finished with summer, but just think ahead. It's the middle of December. It's freezing cold outside. And on that freezing cold day, this person walks into the church in sandals and a short sleeve shirt. When it says that they're without clothes, it means they don't have the clothes that they need. They cannot possibly stay warm. If that's all they have. Not only that, it says they don't have the food they need. You can tell they're losing weight because they're rationing food. It is an insufficient supply for their daily needs. And unlike the stranger who walks in off the street and you don't know why that might be, if it's legitimate or not, this is someone that you're acquainted with and you know, you know that the need is legitimate. The change in their status. Something has happened. This person that you know is in a difficult place. And your response at first gives the appearance of compassion. Let's say you come up alongside them. You put your arm around them and you tell them, I'm so sorry. I really am. I'm so sorry this has happened. Can I pray for you? So you pray. And when you finish your prayer, you put on your coat. You wrap that warm scarf around your neck. You put on your fleece-lined gloves. And then you walk out the door to that blistering cold wind, and you say to your friend, be at peace. Be warm. Be filled. James is asking, 
did you do anything at all to truly help that person? Did your religious words make a meaningful impact in their life? Not at all. In fact, it only created confusion because you said all the right words, but you didn't do the right thing. In verse 17, James explains the point of his illustration when he says, even so, or or, therefore, he's making the point that a profession of faith without a faith-filled practice is no faith at all. Religious words without faithful obedience has no meaningful impact in the world. It's like installing that light bulb and no light comes on. It's useless. John makes a very similar point in his first letter. If you'll just listen to what he writes, it's very similar to what we hear from James. Listen to what he says. John, speaking to believers, says, We know... Love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. I wonder if this might be the place where you hear the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Jesus laid down his life for us. And I will add here that he gave his life for us even when we were enemies of his. He loved us when we opposed him. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The reality is most of us will never have to lay down our life for another person. The question is, can you give them your coat? Can you invite them into your home? Can you sacrifice your time? Can you demonstrate your love in action and in truth? That's what these guys are saying. Because words without actions invalidates our words. We say the right things, but don't do the right thing, then something is missing. John asks, how can the love of God abide in him? The implication is, it doesn't. Because words without actions invalidate our words. How can a faith that brings new life shine no light? James is saying, it can't. A life that does not show love does not know love. A life that does not show love does not know love. Faith without works is dead. Look at how he continues in verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your works without Uh, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I think this last point that James makes is a dagger. 
as if the other ones haven't been slightly painful themselves. But he moves from a rhetorical question to a ridiculous example, now to what I'll call an empty argument. And the argument goes like this. See, faith and works, two totally different things. Some are great theologians, others are activists. Some are spiritually minded, others are more socially aware. I prefer the classroom, you prefer the soup kitchen. To each his own. James says, no, no, no. That's not how this works. These are not two different issues. These two issues are inseparable. Faith is more than just a mental ascent. It is a life-changing, living, and active truth. And when that truth is implanted in your heart, it will produce a harvest of good deeds. In fact, doing good deeds is an evidence of genuine faith. I want to be clear here. James is not making the case for how we prove our faith to other people. He's giving us an understanding of what it means to have an assurance in our own heart. Because the fact of the matter is, I don't know what's in your heart. I can't make a definitive judgment based on what you say or even what I see. But much more important than my assurance of your faith is your assurance of your faith. Do you have a genuine faith? Well, the absence of faithful obedience takes that assurance away. Knowing truth and being transformed by truth are inseparable realities. The absence of one invalidates the other. Like James says in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. That's good. <laughs> and that sounds like an odd statement to us. It kind of came out of nowhere, didn't it? But I can assure you to his audience, that's not an unusual statement to make. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. And I believe what he is referring to is what's called the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It goes on and says, We shall love the Lord God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. See, the, the Shema is a confession of faith recited by every practicing Jew every single morning and every single evening, even to this day. And James is taking that very orthodox truth and he's saying even the demons know that's true. In fact, the demons have more right thoughts about God in one day than you will in a lifetime. Their theology is perfect, but it's absent of faith. Instead of bowing and worship, they bristle. Fear. That word shudder literally means to bristle. It means for one's hair to stand up on end. And I think what James is saying here has some significance to it. The demons have an actionable response even in the absence of genuine faith. 
what they do says something about what they believe. Maybe they bristle in defiance, refusing to bow and worship before God. Maybe they bristle out of fear, knowing, as they do, the outcome of the final judgment. Whatever the reason, there is an observable reaction even in the absence of faith. See, faith and action are inseparable truths. What we do says something about what we believe. True believing Christians do not do good deeds in order to earn their salvation. Instead, their salvation produces a harvest of good deeds. And here's why. The scripture is is clear. God prepared good works ahead of time so that we might walk in them. Faithful obedience will produce good works, not because of what I'm doing for God, but because of what God has done in me and before me, so that as I follow him, I walk right in the middle of him. The fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer is the assurance of faith. James, again, is not making the point so that we can look around and judge the hearts of other people. Instead, he's writing so that we can examine our own heart and to be honest about what's there. It's the same point he made back in chapter 1. He's repeating it with different analogies. Back in chapter 1, he talked about looking in the mirror. Remember that? Looking in the mirror, seeing something, and then walking away and forgetting what you saw. He says, being hearers of the word and not merely or yeah and not being doers of the word who delude themselves that delusion is hearing the truth without being transformed by the truth it's a profession of faith without a practice of faith and james is saying that's no faith at all and here's why i believe the issue is so incredibly important Yes, there is something that's tied to the assurance of our faith, to see the evidence of God's hand at work in our life. But there's actually something vastly more important than that. Because how we live says something about the God we serve. Let me give you a familiar passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Listen to what he writes. This is the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and then put it under a peck measure, but instead they put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, and here's what's going to happen. Glorify your Father in heaven. Think about this. Our good works are connected to God's glory. That's a massive thought. Think about that for a minute. Our good works are connected to God's glory. How we live says something about the God we serve, not because of what we do for Him, but because of what He has done in us that is then lived out every day. Which 
by the way, is why it's so important not to segregate our life and determine ahead of time where faith does and does not apply. For example, I, I know I need to be a, a good husband. I know I need to be a good father. But when I'm at work, I mean, I can't let my heart get in the way. I have to make some hard calls. I can't worry about how it affects people. It's business. You do what you have to do. No, absolutely not. We cannot segregate our lives. Because when we segregate our lives, we give a very confusing message about our God. By naming the name of Christ, we tie our relationship to His. You ever thought about that? By naming the name of Christ, you tie your relationship to His. Your character, your reputation. How we live says something about the God we serve. Life and faith are inseparable truths. Those who've given their life to Christ should have a heart to serve. Those who know love should show love. Whether that's serving in a soup kitchen, taking strangers into your home, it's seeing a need and being willing to do something about that need. It starts with caring enough to notice. And then it continues with having the compassion to actually do something about it. Keep in mind that humble service often comes with a sacrifice. The reality is you cannot take care of all your needs first and expect to have time for someone else. It won't happen. You're going to have to make a sacrifice of time, of convenience. We don't just offer our prayers. We offer our lives. We offer our hands. We offer our ears. Sometimes all someone needs is just somebody to listen to. Listen to them. Katie and I were talking this morning about her counseling internship with young adolescents. I'm convinced that the greatest impact that she will make in a child's life who's in a hard place is someone who cares enough to listen. And that's what we do. Christians are people of complete submission. Humble service, heartfelt worship. If the power of God is at work in our life, His light will shine in our life. So I have a real short little video that I want you to take some time. And during this video, I want you to look at the words, but I want you to examine your heart. I want you to think about everything that we talked about this morning because these are some life-transforming truths. And I want you to just stop for a moment and consider how those truths might apply to your life. So, Taz.
I want to be clear that the light we shine is the light of Christ at work in our life. It's His love. It's His grace. It's His forgiveness. That's what can change the world. See, our goal is not to make the world a better place. Our goal is to point to Jesus as our only hope. And that will certainly make the world a better place, but not because of what we do for God, but because of what God does through us. It is His love. It is His grace. It is His forgiveness. We want that light to shine so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in Him. We don't want people to be impressed with us. That's not the point. We want people to be in awe of God. That is the point. Our life is ultimately a reflection of His light. Every good thing. We've seen James has talked about this. Every good thing, every perfect gift is from the Father of light. And it's His light in our life that we want people to see. So that when they look at you, what they ultimately see is the light of Christ at work in you. Let's pray. Father, it's good to see the clarity of your word, and golly, especially in a, in a passage that many see as confusing or contradicting, and it's anything but that. Could not be more clear. So, Father, I just pray that you would take the, the clear truth of your word and make a sincere impact in our hearts so that how we live says something about the God we serve. That the salvation that we have through faith in Christ produces a harvest of good works, not because of what we have done for you, but because those good works you prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. That faithful obedience is the path to good deeds that glorify God. So, Father, help us to be committed to that. Committed to you and the work of your hand through your spirit in our life. May your light shine bright. May they see Christ in us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good day.